Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Hey, you. Welcome to The Struggle is Real podcast, and I'm your host, Justin Peters. I'm assuming the job you have now isn't the position you want forever. Most of us hope that as we learn new skills and take on more responsibility, we will get the opportunity to move up within our company. But why do some people seem to get the opportunity for promotions while others find themselves in the same role for years and years? Well, my guest today is going to talk about that. He believes that it all starts with doing the little things right, like being dependable. We'll also get into managing employees that are older than you and how to find a company that you can grow with. I'm excited for you to meet Mason Burchette, who started out as a technician at Best Buy Metals making $11.50 an hour, and now, seven years later, is their director of marketing and development. Seeing his fast growth in such a short period of time, many of his friends and family started asking him for advice. Through that, he ended up writing his first book, How to Make Sure You Never Get Promoted, An Antithetical Guide to Succeeding in Your Career. He also regularly shares his insight as a force contributor and is the co-host of the Crush It podcast. Oh, and he's married with two kids. This guy blows me away. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the satirical author, 26-year-old director, cancer survivor, Mason Bruchette. Mason, my man, what's going on? Uh, man, we are just hanging out, loving life. I know. I'm. I, I, thanks for uh, the reschedule, too. I know it's been a crazy week for me. Uh, I, this has been like... I know this has got to be the highlight of my week. Uh, I've been super excited about bringing you on the podcast, uh, having a conversation with you ever since you and I got connected like three or four months ago. Um, So I'd like to kick things off actually with um, why have you never been happier to have a bad haircut? Dude, so that's a whole story, man. Yeah, last year I got... um, I never went to the doctor, right? I'm like the, the guy that's not been to the doctor since he's four years old or whatever. And uh, just had some like, weird off-the-wall health issues going on randomly. So I'm like, let's go to the doctor. Let's check it out. And uh, go to the doctor. And he's like, I'm going to send you to a, to a urologist. And I was like, okay, cool, great. Yeah, that's never a good sign. So we go to, go to the specialist like two days later. And he's, you know, he's like, yeah, you, uh, you have cancer, man. And so, yeah, it's just like, you know, you always hear the stories of people getting diagnosed with cancer and it's like these really sentimental touching marks. I'm so sorry, sir. You have, he was just like, yep, that's definitely cancer. And I was (laughs) like, okay, so here we are. And that's that, that kicked it off, man. So I, I had surgery like three days later, started chemo not long after that, lost all my hair and it took what felt like forever for my hair to come back and it, it like grew weird so like the sides of my hair were super long the top was super short so I had to go get it cut and so it looked terrible and that's why I was never happier to have a bad haircut <laughs> that's amazing um and what I actually host a another show that's all about cancer survivorship and I've never once had an introduction um or a doctor lay out cancer like that but yeah. I'm assuming um, it wasn't all laughs there. What was your initial feeling whenever you heard the word cancer? Um, 
I don't know, man. It was kind of like you went deep space nine for a second, you know, because I suspected something because I had already been to an ultrasound prior to this. Right. And me being the nosy guy that I am, I was like, Hey, I paid for this ultrasound. I want the ultrasound report. So, <laughs> so they gave me the ultrasound report and it said uh, malignancy by exclusion, which means we don't know what this is. So it must be malignant. Right. Mm. And so I was like, Oh man, I probably got cancer or something crazy. And so the next day the urologist was like, yep, definitely cancer. And uh, so I was like, okay, confirmed what I was thinking. So I had already kind of mentally prepared myself yeah. for the C word. Right. Um, right out of the gate, I was just like, crap. Now I got to tell my wife and my mom that I've got cancer and they're going to freak out. And I wish they did. And that was, it was good. And, uh, but the, it was really the days after that. I and mean, there was definitely some days after work um, where I just like sat in my car and was like, holy crap, I've got cancer, you know, like <laughs> I've got cancer right now. Uh, so it was pretty surreal. And uh, there's probably a lot of that. I still have it unpackaged in my mind and probably never will. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever feel like it was life threatening or was there always reassurance that, you know, yeah. chemo would take care of this and this was just going to be a stage there. So there was testicular cancer, which is super fun for any guy to, to, to consider. Right. And uh, the, the thing about that, which is why the diagnosis was so blunt, is you can't biopsy, you can't poke it around, you can't prod it, because the nature of testicular cancer is it spreads rapidly if you start poking at it. So um, it's pretty much all it ever is uh, when there's certain signs there. And so all they can do is just rip the whole thing out, man. Cut, they cut right into your stomach, rip the whole thing out, it's gruesome. Mm -hmm. But uh, pull that out of there. And so there is... Uh, with testicular cancer, it either go, it gets into your blood and it'll either land in your uh, lymph nodes or to land in your lungs. So post-surgery, you have to recover from surgery and they analyze the tumor and then you have to go for CT scans, chest x-rays to see if it's in your lungs, right? And so there's a period there, there's a window where you're scared, is it in my lungs, right? Did it metastasize anywhere else? And that can open up, if it is, that can open up a whole whole different uh, scenario where how far is it in your lungs lung cancer is a lot harder to treat uh, than just if it's isolated you know and so luckily mine was not you know it was not in the lungs that they could tell had not spread to the lymph nodes but you know there was a good two three weeks there where we didn't really know and so you're just running through all those scenarios in your head wondering whether or not you are going to die or whether you're going to live. And so uh, you definitely have some soul searching there, man. And with, with a wife and two young kids too, it's like, can I go to get my life insurance in order, make sure all my stuff's buttoned up here, you know, because you never know. It's, it was surreal. It was surreal. Was there um, any questions, realizations, action items that came out of that two or three week period when you started questioning things? A hundred percent. Like I, I can remember even being in the doctor's office um, the day that I got diagnosed. One of the first thoughts that came into my head was a question I felt like I was asking myself. And this sounds super cliche, but I swear to God, this is how it happened in my head. I was like, uh, have I done enough to be proud of at this point in my life? And it was like an easy no. I was like, heck no. Like, no way. I'm not, you know, I have not done everything that I, sh that I should have done yet. And, uh, that was, a 
that was a sobering moment because then I started thinking when this is over, if I pull through this, um, what am I going to change? You know, what am I going to do to, uh, if this happens again, if it comes back, that if I ask this question again, am I going to be able to say yes, right? Like, what am I going to change right, when this is over to be able to say yes next time? Hmm. Yeah. So what, what's on that short list now? Is there anything that, that has been bumped up or do you feel like you're currently on the path? You just need more time. Well, you always need more time, right? Yeah. Especially if you, if you feel like you're facing uh, a scenario where you're not going to have any more, you always want more time. Um, and so I think really what came out of it, cause I wasn't doing any of the wrong things. I wasn't being lazy. I'm a super driven person. I felt like I was already pushing as hard as I could go, but it was maybe more of a reprioritization. You know, like I said, I do have a wife, I do have two young kids and being driven for success and career minded and goal driven. Um, that was most certainly the first thing that came into my mind was have I, have I spent enough time with them? Have I invested in, because they're my legacy, right? I mean, I'm going to, I'm building a career. That's part of my legacy. But at, at the end of the day, my two little kids are the ones that are going to take daddy's legacy and do something with it when he's gone. So uh, that was, a uh, that was probably the most that I took out of it was that's where my focus needs to be. It's where the majority of my investment needs to be, right? I'm not going to back off the career stuff, I'm not going to back off the goal setting and the success. Um, goal setting, success and career all involve pouring into my kids. Uh, so that was, that was a, it was a cool moment. Yeah. Um, and it's always really cool to see how people respond to situations like this. Um, and two people that I was really surprised, um, and maybe it shows that you're in the right spot was your CEO and your COO. Um, how did they respond whenever you showed back up at work? And, um, I know I've heard you talk about that moment after meeting with them that first, that first meeting back. Yeah, it was, um, super blessed to be at the company that I'm at for sure. Uh, they were, um, more than gracious throughout the entire process. And we really are a family over there. They took good care of, of me and my family while I was down, um, but yeah, having to tell them you know, I'm going to be out. I've got cancer. Uh, the first, the first question they asked is, "What can we do for you?" You know, mm -hmm. uh, don't worry about the job. What can we do for you? And it's, not a lot of people have that luxury, um, but I do, thankfully. And so, yeah, after I came back, you know, it was it was funny because I came. I wanted to get back to work, man. I hate I hate being down. I hate being out, and I was going crazy. Um, uh, sitting in my recliner. And so I got back, I went back to work probably a little early, too early. Right. So I had, you know, surgery was out for five days. And then the eighth day I was wobbling back into work, you know, still with a little internal bleeding and whatnot, but I was like, I sit in a chair, I'm going to go back to work. So, uh, I went back to work and they were like, should you be here right now? Should you, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And, uh, my blood count was super low. Right. And uh, wound up starting my chemo and was uh, was trying to still work through the chemo and uh, wound up getting uh, neutropenia and pancytopenia where like all of your blood cell counts just bottom out, zero out. So everything was sub-zero. And uh, I got this tooth infection. 
And I was like, oh, crap, you know, tooth infection, no big deal. I'm going through chemo. You know, infections are a bigger deal when you're going through chemo. And uh, I was like, no big deal. Not going to worry about it. So like three days later, it is raging, dude. And it is like intense. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to go to the dentist. I go to the dentist and he's like, yeah, this is not good. Uh, here, take these pills. Take the pills. Like that night, I'm like burning up with fever like you know sweating through the mattress and my wife's like uh you're dying we're gonna take you to the hospital and so this is like in the middle of the night matt my my good friend comes to my house stays with my kids my wife takes me to the hospital i was there for eight days or something like that and uh uh wound up wound up going through all kinds that was that was definitely the worst experience of the whole thing is those eight days in the hospital i definitely thought i was gonna gonna die there uh, <laughs> but when i but when i came back when i came back i was like once again i'm gonna get back in the saddle i'm gonna get back to work and my coo was like you're never coming back to work again until i get like a handwritten letter from your doctor that you are going to live and so he would not let me come back at that point um, for, for several weeks until everything was back to normal and, uh, sprigs of hair were coming back. Like he wanted everything to be normal again. So, <laughs> yeah, you've, um, so you've been at this company since you were 17, um, yeah. Best Buy Metals, the mm -hmm. career path you've taken is really inspiring to see. Um, and you know, I'll rattle off it here technician to inside sales rep to warehouse manager to assistant manager to general manager to business development manager to director of marketing and development yeah seven years uh or seven and a half years seven different positions what do you think led to your quick rise at best buy metals i've certainly never been bored here that's for sure um and i've i got this job it actually wasn't my first job my first job was in a construction company uh, working a shovel. You know, I was a shovel technician digging holes and uh, it was back breaking work. And I'm glad I did it now because I have appreciation for the job I have. But um, I was like, I don't want to do this forever. And this sucks really bad because uh, I was like 16, you know, turning 17. And um, my brother was like, Hey, this place is opening up the road. You should check it out. It's inside, you know, you don't have to work out in the rain and, uh, and so I was, I mean, I was like very dark. I'll probably get skin cancer from that one day. I'm sure I'm a prime candidate for it, but from uh, being out in the sun all the time. So I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to work inside. So I got that, uh, applied for the, the, uh, warehouse job. It was just like a pulling inventory, man, stocking inventory, pulling inventory, loading customers, super basic. And I get that job. And, uh, the day that I got it, so I went and applied for it, went back to work. And I'm running the skid steer, which is like a little bobcat. I don't know if you know what those are, front end loader kind of deal. Yeah. And uh, I'm running that and uh, we're working on a job outside of a grocery store. And the guy calls me that I interviewed with. And so I can't hear because the machine's loud. So I stop it and I'm like right in the middle of the road. I stop it, turn the machine off and answer it. He's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give you the position. And I was like, oh, great. And my boss is like, get out of the road. Get the machine out of the road. And I was like, I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I left and, uh, and started the other job. And yeah, man, it, was, it wasn't long for, before, thankfully, I realized that there was a unique opportunity. The, the company was in a... Um, growth stage right so this was the third facility that it had launched and the first one out of state so the home office was in Tennessee I was in Asheville North Carolina 
and um, I was like, okay, there's definitely an opportunity to move up. I didn't realize how much of an opportunity. I was thinking, you know, get on the sales desk and uh, do something. My dad was a salesman in the building materials industry. This was the building materials industry. It seemed like something I could I could do. And so I started working hard in the warehouse and uh, dressing the right way. You know, my peers are wearing cut up t-shirts and jeans with holes in them. So I'm wearing like nice jeans, wearing a polo, tucking my shirt in, just trying to do the little things right. And uh, coming in early, staying late. I don't, I don't think I was ever late a day in my life there. It's just not the way I was raised. And uh, and it, it worked out. So he wound up giving me a shot. The general manager gave me a shot in inside sales. So I did some inside sales for a little bit and uh, excelled at that. That facility grew to the point that we needed some leadership in the warehouse. I had already worked in the warehouse. I had been trained on some of those machines. And so they were like, hey, would you manage the warehouse? And so I was like, sure, yeah, I'll manage the warehouse. So I actually went back to the warehouse and became the warehouse manager. And uh, I don't remember, that was probably year two, three. And uh, we actually transitioned to general managers from that facility. And uh, I kind of like interim assistant manager of the facility while the general manager was cutting out of there. And that, that store had done really well. And the owner decided he wanted to expand again and open another facility in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, that store had been profitable already. And if I pat myself on the back, I think I had run the warehouse pretty well and had a, you know, a good reputation as a young guy uh, that, that was catching on. And so surprisingly enough, he, the owner came to me and approached me because I was looking at buying a house. You know, I was, uh, I was dating my then, my wife now, she was my, my girlfriend then. And I was like, I'm thinking about proposing, you know, buying a house, settling down, having a couple of kids, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he caught wind of it and he called me and he's like, hey, maybe don't buy that house yet. I'm like, that's always said because he's super cryptic. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, okay, whatever, you'll yeah, see. And uh, so I keep plugging away and he comes down and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm buying a facility in Greenville, South Carolina and like, I'd like you to consider going down there and opening it and, and uh, being the general manager. I think I'm like 21, about to turn 22 at this point. And uh, so I'm like, okay, yeah, let me think about it. And inside I'm like, duh, I'm definitely doing this. And uh, so we do it, he buys it, we go down there, scope it out, we renovate the whole thing, I, I started up and that was definitely the trial of my life. Um, moving in my family, young family, cause I wound up getting married. And uh, cause that process took a little bit of time, I wound up getting married and didn't waste any time getting pregnant with our daughter. And so uh, uh, we moved down there and, uh, me, her, and our little kid and started that facility, 22-year-old. I'm hiring guys that are twice my age, you know, and trying to build a team around me and and earn their respect as a young buck. I mean, because I, I still look like a kid. You can imagine what I, you know, I'm almost 27 now. I was 22 then. I looked like, you know, I looked like a, a bag boy at the grocery store. And I'm hiring these guys, giving them opportunities. And so that was the trial of my life, man. I was down in Greenville for two years uh, running that facility. We built that place up and uh, decided to open another one again in Charlotte. And he moved me over to Charlotte for three months to start that facility. And uh, we, my assistant manager there in Greenville took over and I was like, well, I either don't have a job anymore 
or uh, or we're going to have another opportunity. And they approached me to to move to the corporate office here in Cleveland, Tennessee, take over uh, marketing and development. So that's the condensed version of that story. No, no, thanks, uh, thanks for sharing that. You mentioned having to hire and manage people that were twice your age. Yeah. What do you feel like led you to gain respect from those colleagues? Because you're, there's no way you can execute the way that you've executed without having respect for those older colleagues. Was there, if you could pinpoint yeah. one or two things about your personality or work style or something that might've led you to success there, what would you say? Uh and this maybe sound a little brash, but don't take their crap, right? And and I say that because I'll qualify that here in a second. But I say that because especially when you're any manager will face this when they're building a new team, especially when you're a young manager, um, instantly you're going to get tested right out of the gate. They're going to see how far they can push you. They're going to see how they can. I mean, because most of these guys had kids my age, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're going to see, see if they can run over you. I got to leave early today. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to be off this day and see if they can get away with it. Uh, so you had to quickly establish yourself. Um, and because we've seen this with other young managers that weren't able to do it. You have to quickly establish yourself in those first several weeks, first several months, are you going to set a precedent that you're a pushover, right? And they'll never respect you. And you'll, the store will never be a success. So I had to quickly, uh, which was hard for me because I'm definitely an introvert at heart, but I had to establish myself as somebody that wasn't going to get run over. Um, and you also have to have a mindset that, that the way you deal with one individual affects the rest of the team, right? And that was something I learned early on, thankfully, from being somebody who loves to read. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation with Mason Burchette. Before we get back to the show, I want to share with you the opportunity to win a free copy of Mason's book, How to Make Sure You Never Get Promoted, An Antithetical Guide to Succeeding in Your Career. All you need to do is share this episode on your Instagram story and tag me at Justin Lee Peters. I'll pick one winner before my next episode release. Looking forward to seeing your post. Now back to the show. And you also go from making eleven fifty to start with an hour, um, which yeah. comes out to like something like twenty three thousand. And I'm assuming now, as as the director of marketing and development, you make a whole lot more than that. Um, yes. But you really, <laughs> I mean, you have a family of two young young daughters now. Um, son and, and a daughter. Uh, yeah, son and a daughter. Yep. Um, you're, you're set up. How do you, what's your thought process on taking the next opportunity, especially with a move in there? Um, is was money the incentive in that piece to it? Because if you got the money already, what <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really kind of curious on how you're deciding to, to uproot your family and move, <laughs> you know, what yeah. was the conversations like, and what was your decision-making process there? Yeah. I mean, I would, I think anybody would be a liar if they say money doesn't factor into it. It always will. Um, you know, it was a really unique, a unique week that I had the week that I was offered the position here at Best Buy Metals to, to move to corporate and be on the executive team. I actually was being courted by, uh, another company that the same week I got this offer, they had flown me to Madison, Wisconsin and made me another offer for, a significant amount. Right. And, uh, and so I had flown back. I literally flew back into Charlotte, North Carolina, got off the plane, 
went, changed my clothes, drove to the restaurant to meet the CEO and COO of Best Buy Metals so they could give me the offer. So I was feeling like I was rolling right there that day, you know, but um, the, the money at that point could not be the only deciding factor because they were similar offers. And so it was definitely what does the opportunity look like here? And I was going to be moving either way, right? So at this point, I lived in Greenville, South Carolina. I take the job with one company. I have to move to Charlotte. I take the job with the other. I have to move to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And um, the it, it was a relatively easy choice for me. The investment that I had made here, I did not feel like I wanted to to risk losing. There's a certain amount of security you have when you've invested the first, you know, at that point, five and a half years of your life into something. Um, so the opportunity for continued growth was certainly the main driver in my decision. We were definitely okay moving again. We never anticipated that Greenville, South Carolina would be our forever home. And uh, even on a personal note, moving away from our families was the best thing we ever did for our marriage. So we were totally cool with the move. Uh, it was definitely the long-term opportunity that was the driving factor. Makes sense. Um, and now you go out and write a book too. <laughs> Did, I mean, I was bored. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Go go through cancer. Uh, got the podcast going. You're building yeah. a brand there. Uh, I'm assuming you're busy at, at work as well, getting caught up there, and and it's mm -hmm. just a continuous cycle of busyness. Um, two young kids. You got a lot going on. Why yeah. why why write a book? Yeah, you know, uh, I I love um, providing value where I can. And, you know, the, I, I'm hopefully will be a lot farther than I am right now, um, later on in my later years, but I've achieved a certain amount of success. I'm not trying to brag, but I have, um, that some would say is unusual for people my age, especially the area I grew up in, right? I grew up in the backwoods of Western North Carolina, right? We were, and nothing wrong with, with trade jobs. We were diesel mechanics, you know, we were, we were th those kind of things, which is great. We need those guys, but, um, that's just, that's where my vision was when I was that age. When I, when I went to community college, I went for, to be a diesel mechanic, right? So that's what I was, that's what I started to do. Um, and so, you know, being able to transition my mindset uh, to, to reprogram that and want a different level of success. Um, this is something that, that anybody can do, right? And I've had people that I grew up with be like, Hey, you know, what did you do to, to get where you're at with your company? What did you do to do that? What did you do to get that car? What did you do to get that house? You know, and it's not rocket science. It's really just some basic principles of uh, that I followed. And so that's why I wrote the book and I called it how to make sure you never get promoted. Um, you know, which is just satire. I, I tell you what not to do. So, you know, what to do and literally just watched peers that I used to work with that never made the cut. You know, I, I learned from their mistakes. And then I definitely made plenty of my own mistakes that I learned from. And then, you know, thankfully, I did a lot of things right, and learned from those as well. And I just wanted to put all of those into paper. And if for nothing else, just for the community that I grew up with, and the, the, the people that I already know, uh, could see some of the short answers to the questions I've been asked along the way. Mm. And I saw that you dedicated the book to Nick. Um, yeah. Was this your friend that you lost in 2020? Yeah, yeah. So Nick was a good buddy of mine. We actually worked together at Best Buy Metals. And 
you know, we were gym buddies and he's a good close personal friend of mine. And he suddenly unexpectedly passed away of a heart attack. And, and so, you know, he was, he was, had some struggles in life and was really trying to dig out of them and, and uh, pursue career success and, you know, do the, the better things. And so it was tough to see, you know, him, him die so young and so early. So I dedicated the book to him. Hmm. That's super cool. Yeah. I noticed that. And I, I was trying to make that link there. I wasn't sure if that was him or not, but that was that's, him. It's yep. really cool of you to do. Um, so in part of the book, you talk about finding, um, finding a fast growing company or mm-hmm. a, a, a company with opportunity. And one of yeah. the quotes was, um, the first and most important step to carving out a career path is finding a company that you can actually grow in. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice for someone that is transitioning into a, a career to evaluate or find that such company? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, the, if you're already with a company that you think has a viable growth plan or that you would like to see if they do, what you should do is look around at the people that are already in positions you would like to move up to eventually um, and see how they got there, right? Were they promoted from within? Whereas everybody in leadership hired from the outside, you know, that's, that's a immediate question that you can answer for yourself. If all leadership as a general rule is typically hired from the outside or poached from other companies where they're already serving in those positions, you're going to be hard pressed to, to, to be able to move up, you know, in any reasonable length of time. Uh, and so as was the case in the company I work for, they looked within before they ever looked outside the company and said, are there people with talent? that we can grow, you know, that have our core values that we can grow and, and teach these skills to, to fulfill these positions. And uh, that's a fair question to ask if you're in the interview process. I would most certainly feel comfortable asking my future and potential employer, you know, do you like to promote within or, you know, are these positions that you only fill from the outside? Interesting. Um, anything else that you notice in companies that that might be especially great for young professionals that are entering their career and like you looking for growth, maybe not stability mm-hmm. more so they're okay with making moves often or, um, you know, making both horizontal or lateral moves, mm-hmm. uh, physical mo- moves, like what, what other qualities of, of great companies have you seen, especially for young adults? Culture. Uh, by far culture, you got to, the first and most important thing you need to look at is the culture of the company. And this is the mushy stuff that everybody's like, man, I call it your core values. Yeah. I I struggle here because I'm not entirely sure how to always give advice on how to vet out culture, especially Mm -hmm. during the interview process. I mean, Mm -hmm. you get to know the culture um, once you, once you get into the company and, you know, for your first 90 days, you can, you can see how they make decisions, who makes decisions, where are the funnels at, what do they value in the company, et cetera. Uh, but how could they potentially do that before being coming on board? Yeah. You got to remember when you're in the interview process, you're being interviewed for the job, but you're also interviewing the company, right? And so um, I recommend asking your employer if it's okay for you to talk to other members of the team. Mm. And if they're like, Oh no, we don't really want to allow that. There's probably a good reason for it. But if this is a place that's proud of their culture and proud of their team spirit and proud of, of the teams that they're trying to build, they're going to be more than happy to plug you in with people that are existing on the team and let you pick their brain on their experiences there. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a great piece of advice, actually. And I don't think a lot of people think about that, um, asking for additional conversations outside mm-hmm. of the pre-planned conversations as part of the process. Um, just, you know, regular Joe that uh, you want to have a conversation with and get his you know thoughts and feelings on it. Yeah. yeah. Talk to the receptionist when you walk in the building and learn her name and see how her day's been. And you'll get a good feel for how that company is being run. Everybody has bad days, but you're not going to find a manager or that's interviewing you that says this place sucks and everybody hates their job here and you're going to hate it when you come here too. They're going to try to paint it in a light that is attractive, obviously. Um, and so it can, you can be like, great, this is a great place to work. Take the job two weeks later, everybody hates life and the culture sucks. So that's why I'm a huge proponent of trying to interview other members of the team yourself and have conversations with them so you can get a better idea of what the culture is really like. Totally agree. Um, and I could, I would say that a lot of your advice in the book is conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Uh, I love that aspect though, because I feel like anyone could pick this book up and implement it. You don't have to have the technical skills. A lot of what you're talking about is how to go from the, uh, floor technician all the way up to the director in seven and a half years. And a thread that I see a lot in your book is dependability. And I love this because I think this should be key number one. Um, If you're a frontline employee um, and you're looking to grow, thinking about dependability and becoming the most dependable person, I think is the fastest way to grow in a company, especially whenever you're at that stage of your career. Um, So can you talk on dependability a little bit and give some advice around that? Yeah, that's certainly probably the most, one of the most important things I talk about in that book. And as a manager and a former, former middle manager, um, dependability is crucial, man. If you're, if you're not dependable, you'll never have opportunities. And this is why now talk about this in the book, you know, let's say that you're just, I'm just two or three minutes late, right? I'm just, I'm just going to be just a few minutes late. If you're consistently a few minutes late, you're consistently unreliable, right? You know, you're going to be known as the guy that's a few minutes late. And so the questions start arising, why are you a few minutes late? And a company that's trying to grow from within and give people opportunities will certainly ask these questions. Why, why is Mason a few minutes late? What is keeping him from getting here a few minutes early, right? And if it's, oh, I hit traffic, okay, why don't you get up a little earlier so you miss the traffic? You know, oh, this happened or this happened or this happened. Why is it that you can't take some personal, some self-government and control the, the variables in your life that are consistently making you a few minutes late? If you can't do those in your personal life, how are you going to do those for this company? And, uh, you know, wise employers will look at how people are governing their personal lives and say, that's how they're going to manage company dollars, company people, company assets, we can't afford to give them these opportunities. Mm. And so your personal life shows, doesn't matter how much you try to keep it a secret. Um, And that's where the dependability factor comes in. If you're always late, you obviously can't manage your personal life. Yeah. So, so true. Um, It's the little things, especially early on. One one quote that I I saw here, um, I'm going to read this verbatim. I'm not going to give away the entire book. Um, I would recommend people going to pick it up if they like what they're hearing here. But I really, really liked this thought. And you said, as a manager, 
when it came time for employee evaluations, one of the very first things that I did was review the time clock records and see how often an employee was tardy and how many days they missed. If they can't be trusted to figure out how to beat the morning traffic or how to wake your butt up in the morning, why should I trust with, trust you with the additional responsibilities that come with the promotions? That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't tell you, and this is why, you know, how many times, again, it's that mentality of, oh, I'm just a few minutes late and it shows that person has no regard for, and I, I say this in the book, we'll just give the whole thing away that, you know, somebody that's not dependable or time conscious is a thief. Now, time is the most valuable asset that any of us have. Once it's gone, you can't get it back. Yeah. And so, you know, as a manager, there were things that you're scoping out, you're trying to plan your day. You know, you've got people coming in at certain times to, to, to do certain things. And, you know, coming from the manufacturing world, um, where we're providing building materials, you know, for contractors, these are guys that are up at the crack of dawn. They're ready to get on the job. Time is money. Chop, chop. I got crews waiting for these materials. They're lined up at the door waiting for us to unlock and turn the open sign on, right? So being three or four minutes late puts a huge burden on the rest of the team. There are people that need to be doing other things um, that can't do those because you're not in your place at the right time. Mm. Um, and so you know, you're, when you're stealing other people's time over and over again, it definitely comes out as a negative effect on you in the long run. Yeah. Another project you got going on is the Crush It podcast. Um, mm. This is a lot of fun. And yeah. you, um, uh, unlike your book, you actually co-produced this with um, your friend, Matt, who you mentioned earlier. How did you meet your co-host, Matt? Yeah, so me and Matt grew up together. Um, I've known Matt since I was a little kid. And uh, we went to, to church together. And uh, both of our dads were Baptist pastors. And so, you know, we have hated each other, have loved each other, because that's the way we do. And, you know, um, we weren't that close of friends growing up, really. Uh, we just knew each other. We were acquaintances. We were, you know, we were friends, but it's like we were hanging out all the time. And then as we got older, um, our success goals and career goals and, and family dynamic were really similar. And we just kind of started picking up and talking more and bouncing ideas off of each other. And it kind of developed into the, uh, into the Crush It podcast. Hmm. Did you, um, growing up where you grew up, was there a lot of focus around professional development uh, and personal development, this kind of self-improvement mindset? What do people no. think about your show whenever it got launched? Yeah, no, definitely a lot of skepticism, a ton of skepticism when the when the show got launched. And I would say some of that still exists. Um, this could be a huge rabbit hole, Justin, that we probably won't go down <laughs> as far as the mentality that we had, you know, growing up and and uh, the religious dynamic that factored into that, that's a whole, you know, that's a whole, I'll, I'll write that book one day. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this because I haven't mentioned it. I credit an enormous amount of my uh, leadership skills and drive for success to an organization called Civil Air Patrol, which I was lucky enough to be a part of when I was a kid. And they focus heavily on developing young leaders and pouring into them it's military style right it's it's a air force auxiliary and uh i was i was given a grant to go through flight academy there and learn how to fly and um you know through drill teams and leadership development courses and things like that those great volunteers poured into me and so i definitely credit them with a huge part of my leadership development as a kid 
and uh, carried that into my adult adult life. Um, but outside of that, no, um, there's not a lot of there was not a lot of focus on career success and leadership development, personal development uh, in the environments that we grew up in. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I don't think there's a ton of it out there, or maybe people hide it as well. It's uh, That's why I always love connecting with people like yourself. As soon as we had that initial conversation, um, I was like, oh, this is a guy I want in, in my inner circle, uh, yeah. just because you get it. Um, and you might not know everything, but you're very interested in becoming better than the person you were yesterday. And that's a thesis in my life that I really, really like to carry through. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you said that because I definitely don't know everything, dude. And I learn every day. And I think um, if I had to self-evaluate, I would say one of the most valuable traits I have and that anybody could have, especially with the people I've talked to that echo this, is realizing you don't know everything and having the desire to learn everything. You know, never stop learning. And I mean, reading freaking books, dude, is so valuable and people miss that yeah. and i'm like you can buy all the same books that i bought and read these and learn the same information that i learned like this is this is not private interpretation you know i, I didn't join a secret society that told me how to be a young successful leader i went to barnes and noble and bought a 23 book you know mm-hmm. i made small investments in myself and uh and it paid off in the long run so i think having that desire to learn more is huge huge yeah it, and it, it's not hard. I mean, uh, so many people are out there looking for the mentor um, to guide them through, not realizing that you're right. There's thousands of mentors at Barnes and Nor- Noble, and mm. you can download all the information that they learned over a course of a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, um, and typically 250 pages. And yeah. um, you know, find a title that interests you and just start going. Is there a recommendation for a book um, for that person that doesn't read very often, but wants to start reading, what's uh, one or two books that you picked up early on that were influential to you? Yeah, I grew up in the listening to Dave Ramsey. My mom played his radio show in our car. And so he was one of the first authors I got a hold of. I read The Total Money Makeover in high school. And I would recommend uh, Ramsey Press, uh, Ramsey Solutions. They have a ton of books out now and they're all great. And I would, um, I'll give them a plug and say their stuff is easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's dialed down. It's, it's practical advice for the common man. And it, it helps you get into some more advanced leadership stuff and business strategy books and things of that nature. It flirts with a lot of those things in a practical way. I really enjoy their, their books and would recommend them to somebody that's trying to get in uh, to the success and business and leadership kind of stuff. Do you have a consistent reading habit? Um, I know with two little kids, are you With two able? kids, nothing's <laughs> consistent, Justin. <laughs> the only thing that's consistent is somebody's bleeding, crying, or has peed in the floor. <laughs> so uh, the, that, that definitely throws a wrench in the... I try to read every day for sure, even if it's a chapter. Um, my reading goals for 2021 are pretty aggressive, I will say. Um, so they vary and I have to tailor these every month based on what I've got planned for that month. If I'm going to be out of town for you know a week or two, I have to kind of plan around that. But um, I most certainly try to get through a minimum of, you know, six to 10 books a year. And that can be challenging for my schedule. Sometimes I get through more, sometimes I get through less. 
my books that I read now are definitely larger in volume than the ones I used to read. So six to 10 can be pretty challenging. Mm. And how do you decide which books to pick up? Um, if you looked at my nightstand, I just pick them all up. So this is what aggravates me about myself is I can't read one book, dude. I've got like five books on my nightstand mm-hmm. right now and I'm reading all of them because uh, I'm OCD like that. Um, but but I, I usually try to pick a book that is relevant to something I'm facing in my career. Yes. And the nature with our, our business and the way it's growing right now, there's always something new that I need to try to figure out. You know, we're looking at uh, something right now that uh, I can't spill the beans on, but to give you a hint, you know, I'm trying to learn about acquisitions and brand mergers, you know? And so that's something I've never really dove into a lot. So I'm reading into that. I'm trying to learn how to, what acquisitions look like and how people transition one brand from another and seamlessly without, you know, compromising a customer base. And that's all fun and exciting stuff. So that's why I said it, it's dynamic. My, my, uh, my strategy and reading books is dynamic and it changes from month to month based on what I'm looking at doing. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, one thing you talk a lot about on your podcast, and I've heard you and Matt go back on this maybe at least three times on the podcast, um, is this, um, you know, defining what success is to you. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear if I flip that question around on you, um, what does success mean to you? Yeah. So on the outset, defining success is such a huge deal, right? Because you talk about success. I talk about success. Everybody and their mother talks about success. And what does that mean, right? You know, it means something different to everybody. And so, you know, when I started looking at what does success mean for me, um, I'm very legacy minded. And the most influential book I ever read, surprisingly enough, was a Dave Ramsey book called The Legacy Journey. And, and it talks about, you know, why are you building wealth? Why, why do you want to race? You know, why, why do you want another dollar an hour? What are you going to do with it? And, um, you know, and I started looking at that and, you know, I got two kids, and I got a wife and what am I building here? What's the end goal? And so, you know, I felt a call because uh, I'm a believer, I'm a faith driven person. And, you know, I grew up where people like to go to the, you know, the soup kitchen and, you know, hand out chili, you know, put chili in a bowl and feed the homeless and, you know, donate coats and you know, all that stuff's great and it's needed. And please do that. But I started looking around and I was like, who's paying the rent on this building? You know, like who bought this chili? You know, you know who paid for the spoons? You know, where did these tables come from? Somebody has to fund this stuff. And so, you know, all the while the limelight work of, you know, being there and putting chili in the bowl and patting the homeless people on the back is certainly needed and good. Um, there's a whole nother element of that, of somebody has to finance these things, you know, for the kingdom and, and somebody has to finance good work. And so I felt, you know, as I saw a path in my career called, and this is definitely controversial, called to build wealth and manage wealth um, for a higher purpose. And that's truly how I view uh, the assets that I feel like God gives me and the money that he trusts me with. I feel like it's his and he lets me manage it for him. And so if I steward that well, he'll entrust me with more uh, to manage on his behalf. And so uh, as a legacy minded person, I hope to be able to, to fund those kind of mission works 
um, and, and help in a financial manner and, and build these buildings and build safe places and buy the chili and do the, build the orphanages and, and, and do the things that aren't necessarily glorious but are absolutely necessary and then hopefully pass on uh, some, some sort of empire that my kids can continue to do the same thing with. Mm. This is so tempting to bite at uh, this thread right now. The whole yeah. uh, money is the root of all evil. Um, but I'm yeah. going to leave it there because I want to make sure that um, we can get a couple more questions answered here as as we're kind of yeah. wrapping up the show. Um, I've heard, uh, and and maybe it's your your uh, Instagram handle on the podcast, uh, but it's definitely some. It's definitely seems like the thesis of the show. Do the doubt. What does do to do the doubt mean? Hmm. Yeah, so that was one of the first phrases that Matt actually came up with, and I'll definitely give him the credit for it. Um, that we were like, you know, it's kind of a you're on the fence trying to make a decision. What are you gonna do? You know, what are you gonna do? Just do, just do the doubt, man. What are you doubting? Just do it. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a go for it. You know, it's the Nike swoosh, just yeah. do it. It's our version of that. Just do the doubt. And uh, it, it kind of drove us to take the leap and put ourselves out in the, in the, the local limelight. Cause like I said, the environment that me and him both grew up with building a platform that we've built was a little uncomfortable. You know, it wasn't popular in the spaces that we, uh, that we grew up in. So we definitely had to take some sort of a, public relations risk with the people that we grew up with to come out and say some of the things we say and talk about the topics that we address. Uh, so we just, we just did the doubt and uh, that kind of stuck with us a little bit. Mm, I love that so much. And honestly, I think it is one of the primary factors that holds people back from getting the success that they want is this um, little voice in their head that creates doubt and mm. creates roadblocks and allows people not to chase the things they really want to. And I think you can chase a lot of things with security. We were just talking before the show as well that um, you you love the Crush It brand, the podcast is doing well, um, you have more ideas for books, but you don't mind holding down your day job as well to give mm -hmm. you security to allow yourself um, to feed the family and pursue these passion projects that you have. Um, so I think it's finding that balance and realizing the things that are holding you back from quote, quote, doing the doubt, um, getting those out of the way and going and sending it really. Um, mm -hmm. And I wish there was a little bit more centered or focused around um, some of these things because I just, I just see it play, especially young people, um, myself included, that this is, this is like the most challenging thing. Whenever I press record on the podcast, um, that first publish of the episode, and you're just like kind of sitting back that first 24 hours, um, waiting, <laughs> uh, waiting for what people are going to say, and then realizing, right. you know what? I got some 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 nice kudos back. I got a couple compliments, but wasn't earth shattering either way. It wasn't as scary as I thought it was gonna be. Right. Um, life went on. We kept revolving around this thing. Uh, it, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, I think having um, having that perspective is important, and and realizing what you're doing a lot of times is beneficial to you. And that's, that's what matters. Uh, it's okay to be selfish. 
and develop yourself, right? And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to realize. Uh, don't be a jerk, but it's okay to invest in yourself. And if investing in yourself means putting content out there, then put it out there. You know, we did the Crush It podcast for a while, uh, you know, a good six, seven months and uh, didn't really get a ton of feedback, you know, um, from some family and close friends, but not a ton of public feedback from people we really didn't know. And then we got a message and it was like, hey, the guys you you guys, the stuff you're talking about is so important and it's really helped me. I appreciate you talking about it. And we were like, high fives. It was worth <laughs> it. You know, like the whole thing was worth it. It really was. It, it felt like, uh, you know, the, the time that we had invested at that point was significant. And uh, to see one person being helped by stuff that we were talking about validated everything that we had done up until that point. We're like, hey, if we can if we can help one more person in six to seven months, then it's worth it. Let's keep doing it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we've helped more than one or two by now, but, uh, that's just the mindset we had early on. That's, the, that's how we're rolling. That's how we're sending it. Yes. Well, I, I'm glad you decided to do the doubt, create the show, um, create the book. It was awesome. Where yes. can people find the show and, mm -hmm. um, find the book and anything else, um, in terms of social platforms that people could con connect with you on? Yeah, so you can go to masonburchett.com and it's, uh, it goes to my solo and solo is like a link tree. And so I've got all my, all my highlighted links, the book, the podcast, um, and a few other things you may or not, may not be interested in. My Forbes profile and all that stuff's on there. Um, masonburchett.com will give you the short links to all that stuff. Cool. Um, and with that, uh, we're, we're going to share your book with, with one of our, um, with one listener as well. So if you're interested in, um, getting Mason's book, just uh, screenshot this episode, uh, tag us on, on Instagram. What's your Instagram, Mason? Burchett Mason. Burchett Mason. And mine yep. is Justin Lee Peters. Uh, so tag the two of us. Um, we're going to, uh, we'll select one person before the, my next episode release. Um, so, so two weeks between, um, episode release and the selection piece. So if you want to, uh, want Mason's book and, and you can't afford it for some reason, feel free to, um, post and, and, and tag us and, uh, we'll definitely put you in on that. We'll hook you up. Yeah. Um, so final question that I have for you, uh, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week 16 week class to a group of graduating seniors on a topic that typically isn't covered in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What would you teach and how would you teach it? Financial literacy. Mm, let's go. And yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would definitely teach financial literacy. Um, and it would be so practical and have zero fluff that everybody would be like, this guy's telling me stuff I already know. And it's because I think financial literacy handicaps far more people than we realize and keeps them from their biggest hopes and dreams. Getting your personal finances right is the biggest step into pretty much any goal that you want to hit. If, you, if you're broke all the time, you're never going to be able to, get, to do anything. Yeah. Uh, I love financial literacy so much. It's so important because I believe if that was taken um, under control, and mm -hmm. I, I really do think it's not a long process to get it under control, nope. that um, it could drastically change your life. What would be one, two, maybe three accomplishments that you would want those those students to have completed before the end of the class? Um, a couple of accomplishments before 16 weeks, I would say put $1,000 in the, in the bank of cash that you're not going to touch. It's just going to sit there in case that you blow a tire. 
um, and then knock off a couple of small debts. Uh, those are get a few short, quick wins um, because there's a lot of emotional connection to money. And if you can get a few short wins and start seeing a snowball effect, it really helps drive uh, your ability to pour more into your personal finances and get stuff buttoned up quicker. Yeah. Uh, totally agree with that. Uh, Mason, we're going to have to bring you back on the show at some point in time uh, to talk all things financial literacy. Uh, anything else that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? I would share that your podcast freaking rocks, dude. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, investing in, in the content you're putting out. It provides a ton of value. And uh, I'm definitely going to share, share more of your stuff out. I've listened to several of your episodes so far and love them. Mm. I love your style and you're killing it, dude. And so congratulations on, uh, on one year and the rebrand and everything thank else you. you got going on, man. Dude, Mason, that is super kind of you to say. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, dude, um, ditto right back to you. I, I think um, I look at it, you as a peer. Uh, I often um, try to see what you're up to and gain inspiration from that. So I, I think I think we are going to have a long-term relationship uh, between the two the two of us. So uh, let your wife know um, that she might have some competition. But I am super impressed with you, everything you've done um, over your career. Hopefully, people have gotten a glimpse of that through this conversation. Um, we talked about your, your fast rise and um, some of the factors that, that led to your fast rise. Uh, we, we didn't directly speak on it, but your cancer journey and mm. the positivity you brought around that and the mindset you brought in on, on uh, that your cancer journey is definitely um, something that I hope people were aware of and um, picked up about you. And so many great tidbits from, from your book. Um, I love the dependability piece to it. I think if anybody goes out there and grabs your book as well, um, it, it's not a long read, but you're going to get a ton of great things that you can bring in to, to work on Monday and start implementing right away to become um, from going from an average performer to a top performer. So uh, thanks for creating the podcast. Thanks for writing the book. And of course, thanks for coming on the show, Mason. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.